Okay. Before we get started, we're going to be looking at 3 John today. Um, so the, the entire chapter, so we'll be reading that in just a second. But before we do that, uh, let's go to God. Let's ask His blessings upon um, His Word this morning to our ears. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the privilege of being able to come to You today to worship You. From the youngest to the oldest, we praise You, God. And thank You, because we're all children of Yours. Um, so today, if you would, would you bless us with a greater understanding of this, your word? <clears> Third <throat> John is a, a very important chapter, in, in my mind at least, a very important book. And so if you would, just bless us uh, as we hear these words today. May they come from you and not from me. And would you bless us with uh, just more of an understanding of, of what you need us to do in order to promote your kingdom. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Going to do it again. Do it every time. Yeah, let's try it and see. There's people out there. Oh, thank you very much. All right. I don't know what it is. But I get ready to talk and all. Everything just kind of happens. Okay. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's Word from 3 John? <clears throat> this is where we are told, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. <clears throat> so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I'd rather, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. My pleasure. <clears throat> this particular letter, 3 John, is a study on what can be right and what can be wrong in the church. 
much of what we've talked about in the last few weeks, especially the studies we've done on First and Second John, pertain to how to walk in righteousness, how to know you are a child of God, how to know what you're doing and saying are going to be right in God's eyes, and how the world is going to hate us for what we say, believe, and do. I believe these two letters are some really good readings for anyone who is either young in their faith or perhaps unsure about their faith. Do these things and you can know. It's a simple formula. Do this and you can know. But expect the world not to understand. A third John is, in my mind, a little bit different. As I told you all the first week, we opened these letters up from John. I, I, this, I've learned so much from this study. I've talked with Brett, and Kirk, and, and Fred, and, and really they've said the same thing. And I would think just on a general principles with everything, and knowing Kim the way I do, I would say that each sermon that he has prepared throughout his time as a pastor, he can say the same thing. We almost always get more out of these sermons as we prepare them than you all ever will, listening to them or, or even participating in our microgroups. Preparation is everything, but that's how Bible study is supposed to be. I'm going to have to swallow this thing. I'm just drooling all over myself here. Is it working? You tell me. <clears throat> now, why... Now, while there are 15 verses in this particular letter, I believe that the meat of the subject can be found in part of our reading for today, verses 1 through 12. The first four verses simply pour out praise on Gaius and those who were converted by John. These brothers and sisters were living in truth, not just living in the truth, okay? Believe it or not, there is a difference between those two. Walking in truth and or living in truth or living in the truth. You can, you can in, inject walking in there as well. Walking in the truth can simply mean that a person knows the truth. He might be good at Bible trivia. He could spout off scripture in, in a way that might make your head spin. But he's living, is he living what he knows? Walking in truth, on the other hand, is, is actually living what you believe. If you believe you're a child of God and forgiven, walk and talk that way. You will, not, you will know what it means to be a child of God and be forgiven. You'll know this. Spiritual fruit, as we've seen in Galatians 5, will be evident to all in your life, wherever you go. And you don't even have to say a word. What's so wonderful to hear, as John is alluding to here, is the good news that he made a difference to the saints where he was writing. Nothing is more gratifying than knowing about someone in your life that's living a Christ-like life. Not because so much of what you did or said, but somehow the impact you had on that particular person. Having said that, I do believe that there is a tie-in with those first four verses and the body of this letter. An emotional tie-in here, if, if nothing else. For in the body of the letter, those who were walking in truth, not just walking in the truth, are the ones who are being described in verses 5 through 8. 
Verses 9 through 12 is talking about those who are not walking in truth, although they may believe that they are walking in truth. I hope that's kind of clear. The last three verses simply are a short hope to see you late. I hope to see you soon writing to Gaius and the others who this letter has been conveyed to. Honestly, the letter attributed to John, the disciple of Christ, almost sounds very Pauline in its writing, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. After John congratulates Gaius and the others who are living or walking in truth, he gets down to the heart of the subject. Again, as Paul might do, he talks about and he commends a group of people who are living faithful lives, going into the world, teaching what they know, that is, Christ and Him crucified. This, this should be a good lesson for us today that we should be considering how we as a church might be supporting missionaries who go into foreign lands to proclaim what they are living so that they too might have the chance to spread the good news. I mean, look at how John lays out what they're doing in 5 through 7, and then he gives them a therefore in verse 8. They, missionaries, are doing these great things. Therefore, we ought to be helping them do these great things. Can you hear the excitement in in the writing here from John? Remember, we've been told by Jesus himself in Matthew 10, 42, that even if we offered a mere cup of cold water to one of his children, he would not be forgotten by God the Father. We don't have to do much to do our part in helping those who are out in the fields and on the battlefront for Jesus Christ. But anything helps to promote God's kingdom in a world that is so obsessed with fighting that kingdom. Jesus even goes, or John even goes so far as to say that those in his day who were in the fields serving the Lord, they didn't even take anything from Gentiles. Of course, we know Gentiles were basically the, the non-Jews of that day and time. Today, that would be more like non-Christians, I would think. Now, while that sounds maybe abnormal in our, in our day, I mean, let's face it, a non-Christian's money is green too, isn't it? Uh, but this is more about putting the onus on us, I believe. Those who believe in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. We know it is the Great Commission. While we all will not be able to, or for whatever reason, we won't go into the mission fields. If we do, it might be on a temporary basis. But this is for every one of us in this capacity. Does or should the Great Commission not pertain to us as well? Well, certainly it should. We're not immune to that, not at all. We should still do our part, and that's helping those who who do go, who can go, and serve abroad. Through our financial gifts, through our prayer, through any means possible, we can and we should be assisting. Now, what we shouldn't do is depend on the rest of the world to do our job, basically. It's up to each one of us to be able to get it done. In subsequent verses 9 and on, on the other hand, these are the people who not only were walking in truth, but not even walking in the truth. Okay, They were just there. So let's look at a guy that had an ego as big as Texas, we might say. One person like this, Diotrephes is his name, 
can put a dagger into the heart of the local church. One of the reasons for having teaching and ruling elders in the ARP church is to maintain the peace, purity, prosperity, and unity in the church universal and in the church local. Kirk calls it the capital C church and the small C church. This guy is the total opposite to the first man we talked about a few minutes ago, Gaius. Diotrephes was a proud man, not necessarily vain in appearance, but he was sold on his own knowledge. Sold to the point that he spoke out against John's authority in the church. Paul, in Romans 16 and 17, talks about Diotrephes without ever knowing his name, okay? Because these, these people do come along, all right? I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, Paul underscores. 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15 speaks to another man who spoke out against what Paul was teaching. Judaizers in early church days wouldn't speak out against gospel teaching so much as they would talk more. They weren't going to talk completely against the truth, okay? But what they would say would be kind of true. Not necessarily false, but just kind of true. And some of the things that the Judaizers were teaching, one main thing was that in order to be a true, consummate Christian, you needed to be both Jew and Christian. You had, in other words, you had to follow the law as well as follow Jesus. It would have been impossible to be able to do that. Understand, the diatrophies of the world will not come and teach and preach that all that we're saying is wrong. Because we know that won't go anywhere. They will come and say that perhaps... We just haven't been giving you the whole truth. It's kind of like catching flies with honey or vinegar, I suppose. And that's why it's so vital to any church that good leadership be in place no matter how young or how old the church might be. The ARP church, our form of government, we call it the fog. There's a reason for that gives us an explicit instructions on how to handle people like this. These are good practical methods of addressing a method of problems like this that John speaks of in verses 9 and 10. Why? Because the diatrophies of the world have been around since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. This is not new, folks. They'll continue to be here until the Lord returns to us. John here tells us that this man was was talking wicked nonsense about John. Get this next thing done. I've seen some things in the church, but I'm not sure I've ever known or seen someone this explicit. But not content with just saying bad things about John, this guy even refused to welcome brothers into the church. Even went so far as to having those who did welcome outsiders into the church, he, he would try to have them put out of the church. Can you imagine doing something like that? Can you imagine having visitors here? And and the pastor of the church would be wanting to get rid of you because you had the audacity to welcome them to worship? I mean, think about that. I'm not going to get into specifics here, but I, I know the situation with a man who felt that he was the only one in the church doing right. And that included the session 
the diaconate, and the pastor. In fact, these leaders needed to apologize to this man and his wife for the wrongs that the couple felt they had done against them. They had to call the shepherding commission, which I'm unfortunately the chairman of, for us to have this whole group uh, give them guidance. And we pretty well told the fellow that he was in the wrong. Well, he didn't like it. Let me know about how unhappy he was over our decision. But I give him credit for one thing. He was at least for a time listening to the leaders of the church and heeding them. Now I say that because I wrote this sermon about a month ago. A week ago, they called me from down there and he's all at it again. Only worse this time. This is just one case. Believe it or not, those things, while they may take on a different appearance, they are very real today, no matter where the church of Jesus Christ is. Now, I do want to clarify one thing here. It sounds as though Diotrephes was not just against John. He was against anyone who looked to John as a spiritual leader in the church. Could have been, if we use today as an example, could have been the elders in the church, maybe even the diaconate, though the deacons are not spiritual leaders, but they could have, he could have been against them as well. Anyone who serves in the church, as a more blanket statement, I suppose you could say, but he wanted to be first. He had to be first in all things. He had to have the last word in, in every church meeting. He had to be told how great a Christian he was, how appreciated he was for even being at that church. He had to be the one who had the bright idea to reduce costs or bring in more needed funding, even if someone else had said it a little differently. He could be one, he could be doing all this while saying to anyone who would listen, I really want the church to grow. I want what's best for the church. All the while, with his attitude, it would be killing the church. And it's happening now. It's happening today. Somewhere in the world, and I know of one place specifically, that it's eating them alive. Maybe in our church life existence, you've, you've known somebody along those lines. I've asked my wife, after having gotten home from some of these gut-wrenching mess meetings that we've had concerning some of this stuff. And I've asked her, how in the world does this happen in the church? My wife, with her sage wisdom, just asked one question. Why not the church? Hmm. In other words, as long as there are human beings involved, we can expect things to happen like this with a situation with a man who thought more of himself and his knowledge and expertise than he did the appointed leadership of the church. I totally understand John's frustration here. I'm right there with him. I'm sure Kim, I know Kim has, has faced some of the same things. We just talked a little bit before church. So I know he knows where this is coming from. Now, look further at what John's saying here in verse, in verse 10. So if I come, I will bring it up, what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Remember now, he is speaking against us, okay? Not just against John. Meaning that he is talking this trash against John 
and the elders of the church. Wicked nonsense. One translation uh, from the Greek called it gossiping. This word gossiping comes from a root word which spoke of boiling water, which as it got even hotter, boiled up and threw off bubbles. Water bubbles? Useless combination of water and hot air. In other words, the words Diotrephes was speaking were hot air and totally insignificant. This guy was basically drawing attention to himself for no useful purpose. They don't have a place in the church. There is no place in the church for people like that. Never have and they never will. Not with an unrepentant spirit. They may be the number one contributor of the church. I've seen that as well. But it's better to cut off the diseased hand that could kill the entire body than it is to let the hand stay on and drag the entire body into hell. Notice what John didn't do here. Though he had the authority to do it, he could have excommunicated this man from the church right then and there. But he merely exposed him for who he was. Basically, he took his power of supposed knowledge that the fellow had and made sure the members of the church family knew to stay away from him and not believe anything that he said. In essence, telling the people to trust in the ones that they are sure that have the love of Christ in their hearts and are working for the good of the church and not for their own good. We could talk more extensively about these negative folks who invade the church, but let's move on. My stomach's not up enough as it is. Second man John talked about was Demetrius. Notice immediately in verse 11 what John says. Do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God pretty simple truth there, isn't it? Demetrius was being promoted to the, <clears throat> to the church as one who had a good witness. Now, this witness was developed over time. It didn't miraculously happen overnight. His reputation preceded him to the point that all who had heard of his reputation, they could have great confidence in him and what he would preach and teach. The man lived by the Scriptures, as it says in verse 12. The truth promoted his life by how he lived. To me, that's a great example of someone who would take, who could make a great leader in the church. I'm going to give you another for instance here that I was aware of in the church. I knew of a man who had become a pastor of a small church. It seemed that the, 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 past, the former pastor had retired and they were calling in a new pastor. The new man had come from another part of the country. He had a reputation, though, for creating problems within the churches that he'd been in previously. And it was not found out until later as uh, he began to recruit some of his old cronies from his previous church that he wanted to have come in, settle down into that community, set down roots and become elders in this new church. None of this had been looked at previously. Seems the new pastor wasn't able to do what he wanted with his church because the existing session wasn't going to allow it to happen. So he needed to get rid of the, the, the former pastor's session. Those were his words. 
The church was in an uproar over what was taking place. Finally, strong leadership of the church got it all back under control. And the new pastor left just after a short period, but quite volatile time there. Though we have, though we have pretty good sound methods for finding pastors in the ARP church, even at times, things don't always go as we would want them to, and it can cause great pain. Part of that's due to a lack of background study on the phone. You've got to do your due diligence. You've got to have a good pulpit committee, and I've got three in place right now that are looking for new pastors in Catawba Presbytery alone. And this is something that we are stressing. Don't go too fast. Take your time. A, get the right people on your pulpit committee, and B, don't try to go out and hire the first guy that sounds halfway decent. Don't do it. It's just good, sound knowledge here, okay? Anyway, I know one of the cases where a pastor came to a small church and immediately started doing some questionable things within the office. An elder called the man's former church's session after he found out about some of this stuff taking place and asked him if he had been a problem previously. Well, there had been rumors to that effect, but there was no formal proof, he was told. And the man asked the question to the session, why didn't you tell us that was the case? You know what their answer was? You didn't ask us. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? And yet, it's, a very, it's unfortunately a very viable answer to many people, especially if they're trying to get rid of a pastor who's been a problem. Okay. Here is our here in our reading. It's evident that John was confident enough, though, in Demetrius to commend him to that church. It's critical that even though we may hear good things about someone, we need to ask the right questions to hear about that man's reputation in all phases of his ministry. That's what John has done here. Okay. He he talked to many people before he ever told Gaius about Demetrius. And by his living in the truth, that that was never a question. He could could tell them about Demetrius with confidence. And that's the important thing. Oftentimes we don't or we can't get the real truth about folks before they come into the church. Either a change in attitude once they're there or not seeking out the full truth can be a real problem when looking for a new pastor. Or maybe even just a leader in the church or or teachers or anyone else who might handle our spiritual future and the future of the church. Maybe even just members of the church. Though it is people who are put into the position of authority, those are going to be more important. To, To choose a new pastor or to appoint leaders or teachers or what have you in the church you must first have great confidence placed in them to know that they are going to do the very best that they can to get the best person or persons available to lead them into the future. You've got to have the right search committee in place in order to find the best teacher, pastor, or whatever the case may be to have them come and be a part of you. It is a very heavy, a very great responsibility to do it And do it right. Otherwise, you can devastate a church in months. Diotrephes was one of those people. 
At the same time, we need to always be looking for those folks who we can, through research, find out how good a potential leader others can be. John knew about Demetrius, and I would imagine that that relationship between he and the church were greatly blessed by each other. But his reputation came from solid, trustworthy sources and sound judgment on how he lived his life. Two men, both coming into a local church, both having uh, influence on the congregation, as it were in the early church. It could have been two separate churches within one area. Uh, It didn't necessarily have to be just one church there because we know that there were house churches. That was the predominant way of having um, worship in that time. But influences like this, positive and negative, can be felt over more than just one small building. Notice how in the last couple of verses, though, how John ends his letter with a hope to be with them and he offers peace to them. This is a letter partly concerning contention and conflict. Yet John ends it with a desire and an expectation for peace. Because Christ is our leader in all things, whether there be turmoil or good strong leadership within the local church, we should have a sense of peace in the most difficult of times. It is to God's glory that we should have that peace at all times. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for this lesson today. Um, It becomes very personal because we all know at one time or another in our lives we face people like this. We face the Diotrephes of the world. We face the Demetriuses of the world. But for them to come into the church, we just have such great hope. We want peace in the church. We want to be able to grow. And yet at times it seems that there are those who for some reason just don't want to see it happen. So we pray today that if, if we get nothing else out of Third John, Lord, may we just develop, may we grasp a sense of, of we need to do things in a, in a way that will be proper and, and right in your sight. We know we have the form of government here, but more importantly, may we always look to the Scriptures for our truth. And may we follow them always. Bless us to that end, we ask, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. All right, our catechism question. Y'all look with me. Question is, question number 49, where is Christ now? The answer, Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. We now have the opportunity to come to the table. This is a time of, of union and reunion, okay? Uh, it, it's a time that we can come together and rejoice in our faith in, in Jesus Christ. For those who may not be Christians, who are not followers or do not profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, this is an opportunity to be part of our community. Now, we do recommend that if you are not a Christian, do not partake of the supper. But come and be a part of of the fellowship that we have here.
And perhaps maybe it'll make you, it'll spur your thinking as to the direction that you might want to take your walk in life. And that being with Christ, so that you too can be part of this statement. I want to read the words to you of institution from the book of Mark. It's short, as most of Mark's writings are, very precise. But he says this, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. That's a wonderful promise, folks. That is one he's waiting. He's waiting for us to be with him. In the meantime, he gives us this table to have a, a preview of what the feast that we will have in heaven is going to be all about. And when we come there, the, 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 the diatrophies of the world, we're not going to have to worry about them. We're not going to have anything but joy when we're in there. And that's what this table is all about. Joy over what Jesus Christ has done for us. But He also knows we're human and we forget fairly quickly. And so we do this weekly. We do this often so that we will remember. Not only so it keeps us going each and every day, but so that we know what Jesus did for us. So that is an instigation for us. It's a motivation for us to go out and help bring the lost to Jesus. There are days when maybe we shouldn't come to the table. There are things that are going on in our lives, hate in our heart for for whatever reason. And you might think about not partaking if that's the case, if you're having difficulty, and we'd be glad to talk with you about that after worship today. But for us all, there is hope here. There is hope at this table. There is hope in in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so today, He issues the invitation to all who believe on Him as Lord and Savior of their lives. Not members of Hill City Church, but to the church of Jesus Christ, the church universal. And He says, come. Only He can offer that invitation. And he does so to you and to me this morning. Come and be fed.